You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. So what we wanted to do is just give a brief introduction to the principles upon which we've been reasoning on in this entire series, and that is that the figurative voice corresponds with the literal. The spiritual corresponds with the natural. It doesn't make any difference, even in um, inanimate objects. It doesn't matter if it's a tree or if it's a uh, if it's wind or if it's a sea. Sheep, we know what that represents. There is a literal and then there is a figurative drawn out of it just in the very words and the things, let alone an entire recorded history of an event. The sun is the full effulgence of light, of course. Us, the ecclesia being the moon, is just a small fraction of the reflection of Christ's light, and it waxes and wanes, sometimes a full moon, sometimes a crescent moon. The reason for pointing that out is that the doctrine that is emphasized in the New Testament, just as Brother Thomas said, that, and again, this is paraphrasing, but the New Testament is the interpretation of the old meaning that it really is our definition to where we can go back and look at the Old Testament. For example, the Abrahamic covenant is really focused on the seed. It's what it's all about, is Abraham's seed. So there's not some obscure part of Abraham's life that's recorded in the Old Testament Bible. It is actually the activity of the seed. That is the focus, how long it took him to get the seed, There was a seed according to the bondwoman. Then there was a a seed according to the spirit. One persecuted the other. So the detail of the history corresponds with the New Testament emphasis of the doctrine of that. It's the same with the Davidic covenant. Of course, the emphasis is the throne. And at length, the record of the Old Testament scripture, again, is not some obscure activity recorded of David's life. Maybe when he was very young, maybe very, it's about the throne and the kingdom, because that's where the doctrine resides. The literal creation, we're going through this now in a series of classes with Brett Houghton um, about theistic evolution, which is just bizarre. It's just bizarre. It's the best word I can think of it. It's an outright rejection of the truth. But you can't get to the new heavens and the new earth, as they're prophetically mentioned, unless you look at the literal record of those events. The law is called the law of Moses, the personal history of him. And Paul brings it out many times, one of which is in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, so that we look at the man and what happened to the man who's called the law of Moses is a reflection of the shadow that is a presentation of the doctrine. Israel, a type of the ecclesia, the life of Joshua, inheritance under Christ. You get that in Hebrews chapter 4. The examples go everywhere. So that when we get to the Lord Jesus Christ, for example, and even his own words, where he said that he was a greater fulfillment of the man, John 6, right? And that he's the Passover, that he's the temple. He's greater than the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. It's true. He says all of that, as Brother Thomas says in the New Testament. But the details of that are found in the Old Testament. And more and more with time, what brethren are apt to do in our community, forget about the world, is to take those statements and then build a wilderness of words on what it says in the New Testament. That's not what's required. Go back and get the details where they are recorded. 
the Old Testament as a volume is significantly larger than the New Testament because that's where the details of the tabernacle, the Passover, the manna, so on and so forth, the priesthood, all the things that Christ is referred to in the book of Hebrews, the greater than Joshua, that's where they're all recorded. And we've mentioned this before in 1 Corinthians 1. Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words. And he gives that at length at the beginning of the first four verses of chapter two. Because to do that would to make the cross of Christ of none effect. What that word none effect means to make empty or void. We think we're enhancing it. We think our elaboration of fleshly language and our enhancement of it of retelling the story is actually, well, now it's putting it in words that God didn't quite understand. We can put it in our own English language so people can understand. That's not necessary. His spirit word is purified seven times. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. He doesn't need us to embellish the story or add drama where it doesn't exist. He needs us to go back to the Old Testament scriptures and detail the reference through responsible Bible study. For example, and you all know this, Trinity, Purgatory, Immortal Soul, the list goes on. It's not just that those words don't exist in Scripture. The ideas don't exist. You don't find those ideas and those concepts in parable, in shadow, in any form, anywhere in Scripture. It's not just that the actual names of the doctrines don't exist. Those concepts are never found. So then when we're looking at Jonah, once again, we, we don't have to just grab from the air or embellish or elaborate on what we think Jonah is about. He is cited directly twice, actually, by Christ as what the intent is supposed to be. And we had it in our readings in Romans chapter 11. It was a condemnation to Israel and at the same time, a call of repentance to the Gentiles. And he says, that's exactly what I am saying. A evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Remember, that generation saw the signs of Christ. And they even admitted it. We can't deny them. Signs don't build faith. We need to be warned about that in the brotherhood. Uh, coronavirus, it's a sign. Oh, it doesn't make any difference what it is. It's not. Well, Putin went into it's a sign. Well, Queen Elizabeth died. It's a sign. First of all, they don't come in convulsions that quick in Bible prophecy. And Israel in the wilderness saw many signs and wonders. It doesn't build faith. Doctrine builds faith. Signs can solidify that faith, which is why they followed the preaching of the gospel. But an evil and adulterous generation, and he said, the sign that's going to be given unto you is the fact that the men in Nineveh will rise. And by the way, that is the same word. Christ rose from the dead the third day, and he was raised up from the dead, so on and so forth. That's significant. The Jew is representative of the crucified Christ, the Gentile, the resurrected Christ. Because why? Why is Jonah the sign? because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, a greater than Jonas sincere. You didn't, they will. They will rise in condemnation to this 42nd generation. So the sign of Jonah 
pertains, we're told directly, to both Israel condemning them as an evil and adulterous generation and the great repentance of the Gentiles, which he could not bring Israel to do ever at any time. And we get it again in Matthew chapter 16, where the symbolic actions of the prophet are representative. You can determine, remember our opening slide here, brothers and sisters, where Christ says you can determine the literal sky. When it's red, and you can understand in the morning when the, what the weather's going to be. But the signs of heaven, that's verse 1, they desired a sign from heaven. But the prophetic symbolic signs, you cannot comprehend. Which he calls the signs of the times. So the literal you know. Getting the corresponding significance of the symbol, the sign that corresponds with the literal, the same rebuke can be applied for the brotherhood today, is what you don't understand. Because this is what the sign is going to be. It's going to be the prophet Jonah. Twice he mentions it. It's drawn out twice by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that this event takes place upon a sea, it's mentioned at least 10, 11 times, maybe more, you can count them in just, I think, the first or second, uh, first and second chapters of the book of Jonah. It's the emphasis because it represents all peoples, Jew and Gentile, and what they represent with, within that scope. The Lord commanded his disciples to preach the gospel only to the Jews. You know that from Matthew 10, Matthew 15. But when he was resurrected, he now said, go into all nations. Remember that. When he's vomited out of the belly of the fish, now the preaching to the Ninevites goes forth. It's the resurrected Christ of repentance and salvation. And we know his namesake was the leader of opening up that time in Acts 9, 10, and 11. That's the walk through this, which, of course, he goes to Joppa to a man named Simon. We've been through this in our, our, our the Acts of the Lives of the, of, uh, of the Apostles and how those acts are signs of doctrine. And he's called Simon, the son of Jonah. That's something we've gone through before. And he goes to Simon a tanner. It's an animal skin covering. And he's told to eat of clean and unclean animals. So this is the sign of the greater than Jonah. Now, this is what we need to remember, brothers and sisters. We all know it doctrine. Because, and by the way, this is not just an exhortation for you. This is myself. Found myself being moved that direction at one point in my life. We read Romans chapter 11 for a point. Because when we go back into the gospel of grace, Romans 9 through 11, it does not matter how absolutely dedicated someone may be to Israel, the nation of Israel and the Jews, they're in a period of darkness. They are Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh. God knows my conscience. I wish that I were accursed and my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh were brought in. Whom concerning the flesh Christ came. But it's not as if the word of God has taken none effect. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. 
And because they are simply the natural seed of Abraham does not mean they are his children. That's, of course, what John Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3. Don't think to say to yourselves, we well, are the children of Abraham. Because in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That's Christ. Any man that is Abraham's seed has got to come under Christ. And he says it's not concerning the children of the flesh. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Not those under the Egyptian bondwoman, the law of Moses, but under Sarah, the seed of promise according to the word. And he says the same thing we've talked about before in the allegory of Abraham's life in Galatians chapter 4. Abraham had two sons, one of the flesh of the bondwoman and the other that was born after the spirit. We, brethren, are the one born after the spirit. And that's what he emphasizes. There are two seeds. And we cannot manufacture an artificial atmosphere of Israel as it exists today, that there is some sort of spirituality tied with those people. It is not. Brother Thomas emphasized that. Their pre-advent colonization before Christ returns is purely on political principles. They return in unbelief of messiahship. And the truth that is in it, they weren't even religious men. If you go back to the men that established the Jewish name, they weren't even religious. He says it again in Herald of the Kingdom. The colonization of Judea by the Jews and the protection of the Gentile government of Tarshish is neither restitution, restoration, nor regeneration. Nothing short of the national establishment in the land under Messiah and his brethren that you and I constitutes either of them in the scriptural sense. So we cannot manufacture a position that we want Israel to be in today. The sign of Jonah is going to teach us that. And so when you look at the blue box, at least it's blue on my screen, the blue box that's in the center, according to what we read this morning, there is the Abrahamic root. The seed is Christ. He speaks not of seeds as of many, but the seed which is one, which is Christ, he says in Galatians 3. And then later in the chapter, he says, well, no, if you're baptized into Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. So you cannot be Abraham's seeds, not as the word of God is taken on effect, if you're not baptized into Christ. For that reason, left side of the screen, they rejected that man just like the natural seed after the flesh mocked and persecuted Isaac. They did the same with Christ and they were broken off. We have been grafted in which are wild by nature and they are in a period of blindness until they are grafted in again under the new covenant. And that's what the scriptures teach. We don't want to change that position. We don't want to modify the doctrine or the type or the allegory in any of these things to get an inappropriate end. So when we go to the book of Jonah, and we're not going to deal with the fourth chapter, there are notes on it, but it's, it, it's, it's very straightforward. It's a prophecy of the gourd. And if you're not familiar with it, it's a pretty fundamental, straightforward read. We've got notes assisted, which are largely from the expositor. 
So the word of uh, Yahweh came into Jonah, the son of Amittai. He's the greater than Jonah. That's what Christ said. This is all we're recorded of him in detail. This is all that we have. One little small account, which we'll look at in just a moment. In 2 Kings, when Jeroboam was reigning, Jeroboam II was reigning. We'll get to that in just a moment. He's told to go to Nineveh, a great city, cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. It's not a matter that the Gentiles are righteous. Those that sought not God have now been brought in, says Paul in Romans. As Gentiles, and I know this because I came in in my adult life, I was not seeking God. So Jonah rises up to flee, and repentance is the key here. To Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh, and he goes down to Joppa just like Peter the son of Jonah. He found a ship going to Tarshish, and Tarshish is the one that are going to bring the sons from afar. So this is significant. The vessel that's largely enlightened, and it's mostly the English-speaking peoples today that are Christadelphians, that are among the enlightened. It's the same national people that are going to bring the sons from afar. There is a connection between the two. So he paid the fare, and he went down to go into Tarshish to flee from the presence of Yahweh. So Jonah is a symbol of the spirit, but also Israel in rebellion and unrest. And you know as well as I do, that's taken right out of Hosea chapter 7, that Israel, Ephraim is a silly dove wandering about where they have no place because they rebelled against Yahweh. That's very important. So that rebellion is also a spiritual doctrine that enlightens the Gentiles. The fact that they are unbelief and they were broken off and we were enlightened to provoke them is a doctrinal principle. It's a very important one. And Emetiah, which means truth, tells us that Jonah is a representation of the spirit of the doctrine of truth. He is the dove. And the spirit of truth is exactly that. It's acknowledging where Israel is today and that we are grafted into them. Remember the first Gentile enlightened when we were dealing with the book of Acts? It's Paulus Sergius. When he saw the false Jewish prophet smitten with blindness, when he saw what was done to him, he believed. A lot of our belief is based in Israel being scattered and blinded. And go to Nineveh. Why? Because Israel had only seen a very small spiritual awakening during the time of Jonah. The other prophecy that we have mentioned of Jonah is just right here in 2 Kings. We've quoted the whole thing. Remember what we said. We don't have to manufacture it. When we go to what the Lord says in Matthew, and it's also in Luke and Mark's account. We're told what we're supposed to understand from this. But when Jonah enters in, in 2 Kings 14, 24, and 25, Jeroboam II, he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He departed not. And there were no righteous kings in the northern kingdom, in Samaria, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of Yahweh. That he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now that's interesting. 
and restored is the same word used prophetically in Isaiah 45. He will bring again Jacob. Though they be scattered, he will restore the preserved of Israel. But it says in the next verses down at the bottom of your screen in verse 26 of the same chapter, Yahweh saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, and he said that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but save them by the hand of Jeroboam. There is a small portion, and you know that Romans 9 through 11 says that. There is a remnant preserved. He is not totally done with Israel. He's kept a preserved remnant of them. This is what we get. This evil existence of Israel during the time, just like Christ, very little effect among the Jews. Why? Because Christ said this is the condemnation. They repented of the priesthood of Jonah. Great in their wickedness, dark without understanding. Absolutely. I was every one of those things. But the Gentiles would actually acknowledge their sin and their repent. Look what happens when we get to the book of Jonah. He said, and this is the fourth chapter, we won't go into detail. This is my complaint, Yahweh. When I was in my own country, Israel, and you said, go to them, I knew that you were merciful, gracious of great kindness, and you repented of evil. I knew your kindness and your mercy, and that you would extend it to the Gentiles, our enemies, by the way, just like the Roman centurion. The enemies of the Jews. And he fled from the presence of Yahweh. Now, Brother Mansfield has this incredible note, just like you have, um, went out from the presence of Yahweh, Cain, he left the land. It's a scriptural term used for the leaving of the center of worship. This was limited to Israel, and it meant to flee from the land, and he gives supporting references to it. Israel is described as the land which Yahweh cared for and his eyes were upon. To depart from that land, as the prophet did, was to depart from the inheritance of Yahweh, Therefore, as Jeremiah says, to be cast out of his presence meant leaving that land. And here's the quote in Jeremiah 52. Though the anger of Yahweh, it shall come to pass in Jerusalem and Judah, Tilius cast them out of their presence, of his presence. So to be cast out from his presence was to be cast, cast out from the land. And Jonah fled from the presence of Yahweh. That's why he says, when I was in my country, I didn't want to go to the Gentiles because I knew you were full of mercy. So he said, fled from the presence. No longer, no longer just going to lost sheep from the house of Israel. And he paid the fare, and it means wages. It's the same using Zechariah to pay the prices of 30 pieces of silver. It is a principle of redemption. That redemption was not seen until he left the land. Is it a light thing? That you will give redemption unto Israel, says the prophet Isaiah? Oh, 
you will turn to be a light unto the Gentiles to the other remote part of the earth. Earth. The paying of the fare is the principle of the pieces of silver of redemption now given to the Gentiles. And here is the strength of the doctrine, verse 4. We know that wind represents doctrine. Yahweh sends out a great wind into the sea, and it was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Nothing shook the nations like this doctrine, Jew and Gentile. And the mariners were afraid and cried, every man to his God. They're idolaters. They cast for the wares of the ship to make the sheet ship on the sea lighter. But Jonah went down to the side of the ship and he was fast asleep. You know what all that represents. Yahweh's word, fulfilling the doctrine, the ship of faith that some have made shipwreck, crying every man to his God, the Gentile idolatry, and the figure of death. You know what every one of those things represents. And then this, the, the shipmaster, and our brother said this in his opening prayer regarding perishing. You and I both know that the words sleep and perish represent two different things in Scripture. When a brother dies, he falls asleep in Christ. And if Christ be not risen, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, we are all perished. The unenlightened, says Proverbs, Psalms, and Ecclesiastes perish. We don't, we sleep. So the unenlightened shipmaster says, Arise, call upon thy God, if he will think upon us that we perish not. Here is a man of Israel who's asleep and a Gentile afraid of perishing. And then they said, Let us cast lots. Because we know this evil has come for someone. They cast the lots, same verbiage, exact same Hebrew language for the Day of Atonement. One goat is slain, the other is set free. Death and life. These are the principles of redemption. It's the complete destruction of the flesh that will bring life. And, of course, the lot falls upon Jonah. He is the one that was manifested in this sign. Because it is condemnation to Israel and it is enlightenment to the Gentiles. And this exact same parable takes place in Acton, as you know, in the book of Luke where they said, thy mother and thy brethren stand without to hear thee. And he said, who are my mother and my brother? And he departs into a ship, goes over to the other side. He falls asleep in the boat. It's nearly destroyed by the raging of the waves, verse 24. He arises and he rebukes it, verse 26. He arrives at the land of the men dwelling in tombs. Crazy. Legion who has no clothes, and he didn't abide in a house, but he dwelt in tombs. Christ heals him, and he was clothed and in his right mind. And then Christ said, let us return back to my mother, natural mothers and brothers, 
In verse 40 says, when he returned, they gladly received him as they will do at his second advent. It's an enacted parable, exactly what we're reading in the time of Jonah. But for right now, he's in the period of the Gentiles. And they said, we pray thee for whose cause this evil the lot fell upon thee. We know it's because of you. What is your business and your purpose? What is your country and what is your people? He's tied to a prophet, to a nation, and to a people. They know it was for him. Nothing stirred humanity like the Lord Jesus Christ. He took all the superficiality out of the law and said, if I had not come and spoken, they did not have no sin. But now there is no cloak for their sin. I took all the things of the law and fulfilled them, giving them a greater place. Sacrifice, circumcision, the Sabbath, the temple, you name it. And I elevated it. And I manifested sin as exceeding sinful even above the law. And he says, I'm a Hebrew. He is the crosser over. He has now identified himself with, who's the first, who is the first Hebrew mentioned in scripture? You all know this. Terry, I think I just saw you word it. Abraham. Didn't you say Abraham? If you're not, then I'm gonna quote you saying Abraham. Abraham, he's identified with Abraham. Who gathers children among all nations, brothers and sisters. I fear Yahweh who made not just the dry land of Israel, remember that, but also the sea, all nations. Israel is forever represented as a dry land. They pass through out of Egypt on dry land and the seas enclosed and killed the Egyptians. Israel entered the land under Joshua, passing through on dry land and the waters enclosed behind them. It represents throughout, even when they return, they will come back from Europe, namely, smiting the waves as they go, the Gentile nations. But he's the God of the sea and the dry land. Because the men knew that he had fled from the presence of Yahweh. What shall we do unto thee, unto thee? What shall we do to you, Jonah, that the sea may be calm? For the sea wrought very tempestuously. He said, not them. He said, take me up, cast me forth into the sea, and the sea will be calm to you. I know for my sake, this tempest is upon you. What was done to him rolled out to the benefit of others. And there's a resistance. And they row hard to bring it to the land. The people on the sea, remember what we said, brothers and sisters, not that I have not been guilty of this, do not artificially state the condition of Israel today. That's the land. We are in the period of the sea. They are in darkness. They reject Christ. Their government today is corrupt and polluted. It is a den of iniquity, the land of Israel. Let's not change that for convenience sake. 
They cannot be restored apart from Christ. And they resist it, trying to make the sea calm. And here's the conversion. He told them who he was. He admitted it was for them, for him rather, to their benefit that he be crucified. And now these idolaters cry unto Yahweh. This is the first repentance of the Gentiles. We beseech thee, O Yahweh, again, as our brother mentioned, this word in his prayer, that we perish not like others, that let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not upon us innocent blood. That's upon the Jews. O Yahweh has done as it has pleased thee. And they took up Jonah, both Jew and Gentile. We just had it in our readings. Pilate, Herod, come together to crucify Christ upon the multitude of the people rising up in their voice, and they cast him into the sea. And the sea ceased from a raging. That was the great wind of doctrine that Yahweh stirred up to trouble the sea. There's the answer of it. It's the death and sacrifice of Christ. That was the answer of all the law and prophets and psalms. And the men feared Yahweh exceedingly because it did exactly what he said it would do. It calmed the seas. And they, first time it's mentioned, offer sacrifices to Yahweh and make vows to Yahweh. There's the principles coming together. Jonah willingly offers himself in sacrifice. It's a condemnation to the Jews. The Gentiles who are crying to other gods repent and worship the true living God. He died for the ungodly. But Yahweh had prepared a great fish to swallow up. And that is the word means to entirely cover over. And that system of the grave is very important. Someone is buried in the ground because of its figurative sense. The flesh is totally consumed that it may be resurrected. He is totally swallowed up. Completely. Because it's a redemptive principle, brothers and sisters, because it is called the belly of the fish three days and three nights, Christ called it the heart of the earth. Because the heart of the earth is death, but the word belly is the exact same word translated womb in scripture, like in Genesis 25, like in Ruth chapter 1. Like in the Psalms, it is also a place of birth. And we know that from Romans 6. When it is, the flesh is totally swallowed up and buried. And the flesh is crucified. It brings forth a new life. In the case of Christ, a resurrected man. Sarah's womb was dead that it could not bring forth the seed. But it did according to the spirit word of God. So death has got to bring forth life. Throw me into the waters and it will be calm for you. The only way to life is death. The Jews resisted that doctrine. They flat rejected it. 
They could not accept that they had to die of the flesh to have life with God. And so chapter two, Jonah prayed unto Yahweh out of the fish's belly, which he says in verse two, it's a great first principle to bring to someone, showing that the grave in the word hell is the word grave. But here it says he cried out of the belly of hell. That's proving to the unbeliever that hell is not a burning torment. It's a place of a covered grave. And all you have to do is put these references together and show the word that it clearly is not referring to a burning torment. It's a place of a covered up. In this case, case the belly of the fish. In the case that Christ refers to it in Romans, Romans, Matthew chapter 12, it's the grave, the heart of the earth. So this is a convenient first principle. And he cried unto Yahweh by his affliction. That's what Hebrew says. He cried unto him that was able to see. The Lord Jesus Christ cried great drops of blood, it says in John's account. And reason by his affliction. And you know how that word is used. He was crucified through weakness, affliction, infirmity. It's the same word. Crucified through weakness and infirmity. It's the same word. It was his nature. And he tasted death that other men, both in the land and sea, he's the God of the land and sea, would benefit the Jew and the Gentile. Thou hast cast me into the deep, the floods can pass me about. And that's exactly what Psalm 22 says. It uses that very language. The depths of the grave, the floods of ungodly men, the great depths of water have been passed me round about. It represents the grave of persecution that came by conviction of evil men, putting him to death. And those evil men, even when the Gentiles wanted to acquit him, we just had it in our readings, said, crucify, away with him, crucify. They were the ungodly men of the seas that brought his death but he's going to be vomited out. Thou hast brought me up from corruption, verse six. It's the grave. It's messianic type language, as you know, Jonah chapter two is. It's very psalm type language, or it's messianic psalm. My soul fainted, I remembered Yahweh. I will sacrifice unto thee the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay my vows. Salvation is of Yahweh. That's him crying out of the belly of hell with great tears. Hebrews. So Yahweh spake unto the fish. Why did he speak to it? Because all the words of the law and the prophets and the Psalms had long prophesied, not just that Christ would die, but that after three days he'd be resurrected. It says it. 1 Corinthians 15, he died and was crucified according to the scriptures, that he'd be resurrected after three days, according to the scriptures. You get through in type all throughout the scriptures. And the earth, because the grave could not hold him, vomited out on dry land. Now, what did we say dry land was, brothers and sisters? We know it represents Israel. And he did. Making an appearance into Israel. And he was there among the disciples. 40 days, and he appeared to a great number of them. 
But the word of Yahweh came unto Jonah the second time. He's now vomited up in the land. He spent a temporary period, so did Christ, among the Jews and said, arise and go to Nineveh. Here's the real prophecy. Because we just have one verse about him being vomited out on dry land. But here's the prophecy to the Gentiles, Romans chapter 11. Arise and go to Nineveh. Again, it's the same word used for the resurrection. Go to that great city and preach it in the preaching that I bid thee. Preach what I told thee to preach. Here is a faithful servant, brothers and sisters. Christ spoke only the words that Yahweh commanded him. You preach according to what I preach. Don't resist it. Don't try to flee. Preach exactly what I told me to preach. The miracles that I do, the words that I speak, are they not of the Father? I preach what he has sent me. I teach what he taught me and what I've learned of the Father. On and on and on throughout the book of John. That's all he spoke. And it's a second call. Just like you have with Peter and call on him a second time, even with Abraham, call on him a second time. You have the sacrifice of his son. He's second time he comes unto him because it's referring this period of Gentile. And he arises and he goes to it, exceeding great city, remarkable. And he walks through it three days journey. It's a walk in the noon of a newness of life. And it's so large it's three days journey. You know what the number three represents. The Jew is the crucified Christ by figure. The Gentile is the resurrected Christ. And they preached unto, the him, un, unto him the resurrection of Christ. All throughout the book of Acts. When the gospel now goes into him, it's the preaching of the resurrected Christ as it makes its way to the Gentiles. And they heard it. And a day is a period of enlightenment. But notice what it says in the next verse. And I'll be honest. I didn't see this. My wife saw this. He began to enter into the city a day's journey. Not three days journey. A day's journey. The proclamation to the Gentiles began with Christ, but the two millennial days dispensation of time was fulfilled by his apostles. Hold on, it grows from here. He entered in the first day's journey and he began to preach unto them, saying, In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. We know it's a period of probation followed by salvation. Noah period in the wilderness, Goliath, the end of 40 days, he's smitten, and salvation to Israel. It's a period of probation, followed by victory. And then men and men of a believed God and proclaimed fast sackcloth, the greatest of them, even on the least. Now remember what Christ said to the Jews. That's what I've said before. We have to be careful. This is not a warning just be careful, brothers and sisters, that we don't try to base our faith only on the signs of the times. That we reckon every little thing that happens in the world, we call it a sign of the time. The Jews in the wilderness saw his great signs and wonders among them. It says that. 
It says in Acts chapter 7, one of the places. But it didn't build their faith. During the time of Christ, they saw great signs and wonders to where they said, we, we can't leave this man alone. He does great signs and wonders among the people. He'll say, take away our place in our nation. They couldn't even deny it. Signs are not the basis of conviction. Doctrine is. Doctrine is. They see no sign. There are no miracles being performed. Just like the two days that he spent with the Samaritan woman. And then the people of Samaria hear him and they repent. He performs no miracle in the book of John. And they repent. And the miracles that the Jews saw, still they wouldn't believe. The so-called signs. They believed God at what was preached. What miracles have you and I seen? And they put fasting and sackcloth into operation. From the, again, sorry, Brother Paul, I'm going to quote what you said in your prayer. From the least unto the greatest. Do you notice the order is reverted here? It's the only place that I can find in scripture where this order is reverted. It says from the greatest unto the least. Check me on this because I, if it's incorrect, I would like to correct it. It's the only place that I can find where the order is reverted or inverted or turned upside down. A fasting is the total cutting off of fleshly appetite. And the king of Nineveh arose. Remember Romans chapter 6. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. And for those who may be new in the truth, Christadelphia is also often referred to king sin. And you get that throughout the book of Romans where literally sin is personified. Let not sin reign in your body. Where you can almost capitalize the word sin in most places in the book of Romans. It is used, it's personified as a reigning monarch. We're not making that up, but it's literally the language of the book of Romans. The king arose from his throne, forfeiting it to Yahweh. He lays his robes from him, needing a covering. He covered himself in sackcloth and ashes. Look what Luke 10 says. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. If the mighty works had been done among the Gentiles that had been done unto you a great long time ago, they would have repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It represents the utmost of humility. Just by the preaching. You ever been there, brothers and sisters? I mean, we all have. I mean it, where you loathe yourself. You can't believe your conduct. Knowing the truth, even a, a whiff of it, you're repulsed. The wickedness of the city was great. But the truth is not about sin. It's about repentance of sin. He couldn't get the Jews to do it. He couldn't get them to. They sought righteousness through the law that was supposed to manifest it, not to be their glory. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh. He did. 
by decree of the king and his nobles. And again, I didn't come up with this. My wife did. Great point. It's not Jonah now. He entered the first day's journey in. Now the Gentiles are preaching it among themselves. How did you come into the truth? Personal witness of a prophet? An apostle? A great miracle? A sign? None of those things. Someone, whether it was your parents, a relative, or someone you met in the world, who is not in the world, but in the truth, taught you the doctrine of the hope of Israel. He said, don't even let a beast or someone of the flock eat or drink. The animals are going to fast. Let even man and beast be covered with sackcloth. They cried mightily. There was great wickedness and mighty wickedness. Their appeal for Yahweh's mercy was as great as their sin. You want atonement? There it is. We don't do that often. I don't. Let them turn every individual, every single one of us from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. If God will repent and turn away from his fierce anger, that we perish not. That's a term used for the unenlightened. God saw their works, and Acts says that, bring forth meat of repentance. John said that while baptizing. Bring forth fruits, meat for repentance, not just language of the mouth. Your works have got to show that you're repentant of what you used to do. And they turned from their evil way, so Yahweh repented of his evil way. Sin and the sowing and the reaping and the benefit or the condemnation that comes from that is in our hands. If we repent, Ezekiel 18 didn't read it too long ago, from all the wickedness that we have done, great wickedness, it will not be remembered anymore. The Psalms, as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103, sorry, I can't remember which one it is will be remembered and mentioned no more. It's the doctrine that you and I do that at. We don't have to see why he works. We know how evil we are. And so here's the conclusion, brothers and sisters. And I think this was mentioned before in one of the classes. Here's what Brother Mansfield says in his expositor. It was one of his early ones from 1967. This is remarkable. And the notes from chapter four, they will be handed out. We just don't have them here connected. Both Jonah and Nahum, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Remember how you rehearsed that singing? Jonah, Micah, Nahum. There's a reason, and we did this in our introductory studies, that the Bible, in the way even that the books are put together in chronological order as we have them in Gentile times is extremely significant. And Brother Mansfield points out the many, many cases where that is evident. Jonah and Nahum typified the Lord Jesus Christ, though in different relationships. In his mission of mercy to the Gentiles, Nineveh, Jonah typified the sacrificial mission of the Lord Jesus at his first advent, but in proclaiming judgment of Yahweh against the same city, 
Naaman came later foreshadowing the work of Christ at his second coming and will pour out judgment upon those who rejected his mercy. Now, it's significant that it is, I just think Brother Mansfield so precise um, and he epitomizes so many things oftentimes in his expositions that you can just go search it on your own. It is significant that in the sequential order of the books of the Bible, Jonah and Nahum are divided by Micah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Because Micah, in his treatment of Nineveh and Assyria, provides a key and a bridge that helps interpret and unite the other two prophecies. Remember, and this is done, and I'm inserting this statement of my own. This is what happens when we read of the manna, the Passover, the Sabbath day, the greater Joshua, the greater Jonah, it doesn't matter, or greater than Solomon. Remember, that's where he goes in the context. The queen of the south, not just Jonah, the queen of the south will rise in judgment against this generation. She came from the uttermost parts of the earth, Gentile nations, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So he uses two examples of how the Gentiles repented when Israel wouldn't. So it harmonizes Types and allegories harmonize and unify the Old and New Testaments. He shows that Nineveh, I'm sorry, I'm picking up the quote now, and Assyria do not only relate to the past, but the latter-day manifestation, and that the Assyrian of the future will be destroyed by the divine ruler of Israel. He says, although Bethlehem be little, out of her will come a redeemer. And would be smitten by his people, yet he would return to destroy Israel's army in the land. Isn't that phenomenal? In the sign of Jonah, there is seen then the type of the smitten judge and the prophecy of Naaman. There is a foreshadow of the complete destruction that will bring the latter-day Russian-Assyrian or Russo-Assyrian power into the dust. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Phenomenal, isn't it, brothers and sisters? And so when we deal with these, and I mentioned I realized that this may be a little academic and a little fast because we're dealing with the volume of three whole chapters here. But its purpose was to lay out the doctrine that is associated with the greater than Jonah is here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt 
at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.